Until this very moment, I haven't given much thought to how little I know about dressing a baby. Mm -hmm. I just sort of figured you brought them back from the hospital in like a blanket, but I guess that doesn't no. totally make sense. No, and you have to get a car seat and... Car seat we have. Car seat we have. I'm Emily Spivak. I'm an artist and a writer. My pronouns are she and her. And I'm based in Brooklyn, New York. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom. Emily just became a parent. That's her at the top of the episode talking to her mom and husband about what their baby should wear home from the hospital. And she's also added producer to her resume as well. That clip is from her new Netflix series, Worn Stories, which is based on Emily's book of the same name. The book and the series are about how our clothing is an overlooked storytelling device. And when we actually dig into the clothes that we have and why we hold onto them, what emerges are all kinds of stories. And what I was doing with the book, with Worn Stories, and then also with Worn in New York, which came a couple of years after that, and with the show, was trying to highlight those stories using the clothes that we wear every day. Are you somebody who's always been fascinated by clothes? Or was there a particular element of your clothing that like got you thinking about the stories that clothes tell? How did it come to pass? So the way the project came about, so in like 2007, which feels like a million years ago, mm -hmm. I was really into vintage high heels and I loved eBay. And I found a posting that was a Playboy bunny outfit from like the 50s or 60s. And it was complete with like the puffball tail and the ears and stockings and it had the heels. And what it also had was the ID card of the woman who had worn the outfit. And it was just like this black and white photo, kind of like driver's license-esque. She was in street clothes, nondescript. And there was just something at that moment where I was like, who is this woman? What is her story? What's the backstory of this garment? When would she wear it? Um, like there was just something that like piqued my interest. And then I started digging around eBay for other stories that people were sharing. And so I created this online archive of all of these stories and I started bidding on a lot of the garments and I would show them in a gallery setting. Um, and then I started, you know, I was like, well, you know, actually when I look in my own closet, I see this whole archive of experiences and memories. And so what would happen if I started writing some of my own stories, you know, on eBay, kind of fascinating because it was a platform meant for transactions. And yet these stories were kind of emerging almost like, you know, coming through the like cracks of a pavement, like flowers coming through the cracks of a pavement, like people felt so compelled to share these stories. And so I started asking friends and family for their stories. And I was hearing stories that I just never heard before, you know, people who I thought I knew incredibly well. And these were stories that were coming out that I was just like blown away. So I realized at that moment that, you know, our clothing could be this overlooked storytelling device. And if I started asking people, I would get all these kinds of amazing stories. And so then I started asking strangers 
I started asking people I admired. I started asking people on Craigslist. And I created the Warren Stories website in 2010. There's an episode of Broad City where Abby has to come up with $700 fast. And so she turns to selling her clothes at Beacon's Closet. Good luck. Give it your all. That one's so pretty. My mom got it for me. Well, you know, it smells like fresh detergent, right? That skirt's one of my favorite pieces. Um, I got it when I thought I was going to study abroad in Copenhagen, but tags are on it, so, oh, yes, okay. If you're a Brooklynite of a certain age, this scene is excruciating. A disdainful, fuchsia-lipped fashion Asian judges and rejects Abby's entire wardrobe. I remember being a 21-year-old NYU student and schlepping garbage bags full of sartorial treasures to Williamsburg, only to be offered $12.50 in store credit and a condescending smirk. Which is why I started selling my clothes online using the app Poshmark. Sure, I have to photograph and post each item individually, but at least I make some money and, more importantly, keep my dignity intact. When it comes to listing my used clothing, I do the bare minimum, but some sellers style each of their garments with accessories or model each piece individually, or in the case of one seller on the app Depop, write elaborate diary entries that have very little to do with the article of clothing being sold. This seller's handle is Trust Fund Goth, and if I had to guess, she's a 21-year-old NYU student. Her posts are like the 2021 version of LiveJournal, full of bad grammar and anecdotes about sexual encounters that make me say aloud to my computer, baby girl, let's talk about IUDs. Here's her description of a pink Vivian Westwood sleeveless knit with nautical vibes. My little sister is an e-girl dating a country club boy whose dad owns a hunting ranch that allows 10% of its premise to be drilled on. Aside from that, I don't think he really works. I bought this shirt for her as I think it's preppy enough to be worn to a golf club, but also what do I know about golf? Literally nothing. Vivian would probably hate me for saying this looks like it could be worn to golf, but you know who I hate? My boyfriend. He was supposed to take pictures of me and all this stuff. At least he fucking vacuums, but does he have a cattle ranch to avoid taxes? My sister dates up. What the fuck do I do besides sell cute clothes? Back to the point, I'm selling this. It fits like a small medium. Or this one for a plaid blouse, which contains no punctuation. Roughly 90s Westwood top. Forgot the season, but it looks way better than my wrist bandage, which you probably would not have noticed had I not pointed it out. But I burnt it while cooking gluten-free pasta, and the placement is kind of awkward. Unlike this top. I'm posting this from the shower. Trust Fun Goth posts photos taken in her messy bedroom or her boyfriend's apartment or her parents' suburban home, presumably during summer vacation. There's one photo where you can see a framed picture of, I think, her parents in the background. They look like a nice older Greek couple. Trust Fun Goth writes, I have money I may or may not get from my parents, depending on my behavior, so please take this dress off my hands. Also, my parents won't buy me a $200 toaster because they said I, quote, am fucking delusional and allergic to bread, which isn't very peace love of them. According to an article from last summer, over the course of two years, Trust Fund Goth has made $50,000 on Depop. By the way, I know that shirt's from Forever 21. You're not kidding anybody. 
so many of the stories in the series are like sort of like this Playboy Bunny costume, intrinsically linked with gender and like gender presentation, which I suppose isn't surprising, right? Because like that's one of the earliest ways that we're socialized around gender is like, what do girls wear and what do boys wear? Um, But I'm curious about sort of your reflections and observations on that and if there are any stories tied to clothing items and gender that really stick out for you. We represent ourselves through the clothes that we wear. And that's a decision that we make and the decision on how we want to present ourselves to the world and how we want to be interpreted. And it's a mode of coming into who you are as a person of how you want to be identified. So it it felt only natural to include stories that were, you know, considering representation through gender and et cetera, et cetera. There's also the story of the non-binary 13-year-old trying to figure out what they want to wear for their b'nai mitzvah, which, yes. I mean, like 13 is just a hard time full stop. Um, but that story is so incredibly dear as Spirit is trying to figure out, like, how do I present myself to my community during this time of, like, transformation and stepping into adulthood? Right. And I mean, first of all, I would love to be as articulate and just as, I don't know, mature as Spirit (laughs) was. Um, It was just incredible. Spirit was just so, so thoughtful. When we went and shot Spirit, um, when they were looking for the top that they were wearing to their B'nai Mitzvah, um, that sort of back and forth that they were having, do I dress? You know, for a while I was trying to dress, you know, in a sort of like traditionally masculine way or traditionally feminine way. And like, wait, I can just do whatever I want. I thought that in order to be valid as a non-binary person, I had to dress entirely androgynously, which meant no dresses, no pink. Did you try these on or not? Try it on. And I think it affected my mental health as well as my clothing choices. I think the summer of sixth grade going into seventh grade, so just recently, was when I realized what a toxic attitude I had had to myself. And I was like, that's so dumb. So I started growing out my hair and buying clothes that I like. And um, I feel a lot more free. Yes, that is beautiful. I can dress how I like. What did you wear for your bat mitzvah? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) I wore, I mean, this was, you know, in the 90s. I wore an iridescent, hot pink, floofy dress that was, you could wear off the shoulder or not. And I'm wearing matching iridescent dyed shoes and a headband. And I was so flat chested. And I was just, you know, like trying to, you know, I, I like I just I wanted, I don't know, I, I, I was like kind of a late bloomer and um, I desperately wanted this like off the shoulder dress. And um, yeah, I mean, I look back, it's, it's a, but I loved that dress. It, it's hilarious to look at, but I, I just loved it. Were the shoes and the headband dyed to match? Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Do you have a recollection about when you were conceiving of your bat mitzvah dress? Like, what did you want to convey? What did you want people to know about you? 
I think from a young age, you know, I was not interested in things that were just like, you know, in a department store. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. And we made this trip to, um, you know, outside of Philadelphia to some store that sold these dresses and you could pick the color that you wanted. And I just, I think that from an early moment, I was into just sort of customizing. And I loved the fact that you could kind of wear this dress a couple different ways. I mean, today, like I will sometimes like wear my clothes backwards or I'll wear, like I, I'm always adapting and kind of like playing around with things. So I think that that was a very early realization that I could kind of, I could play and I could adapt. I could pick the color. I could pick the way I wanted to wear it and being bold. Yes. Wearing something where I was not going to just kind of like, you know, fade into the background. I did not have a bat mitzvah because I'm not Jewish, but I had a similar experience choosing my dress for eighth grade graduation. And, you know, like all my friends were like going to wet seal or like, you know, whatever was at the mall. And I was like, no, I need to, you know, have something special, like a dress that nobody else will have. So my poor mom, she drove me into San Francisco and we went to the hate and I picked out <laughs> this like black and burgundy velvet ankle length dress. I mean, it was very, it was very goth. Um, wow. And yeah. it was spaghetti strap. And I remember that the salesperson asked my mom, does she need pasties? And my mom like fully lost her mind. She was like, my daughter is too young for pasties. And I was like, what's a pasty? And <laughs> I accessorized this dress with, um, I believe, crushed velvet Mary Janes and a burgundy boa. Oh, my God. Yeah, I felt so fly. <laughs> this sounds incredible. One of the things that I really appreciate about Worn Stories is that it does not try to avoid the fact that, like, what you wear is intrinsically tied up in the political. And I think, you know, coming from more of the food world, it's like we are definitely at a place where if you are writing about food and not thinking about the political and social context of it, you know, maybe you're doing something a little wrong or you're not examining the full picture. And I think fashion is just like maybe a little bit behind that. Like, I think it's still possible, <laughs> right, to write about fashion or to like, you know, do an editorial spread and think like, oh, well, like fashion is in its own bubble. It doesn't intersect with the real world. But of course, fashion does. Like, as you said, every choice that we make intersects with identity and with how we're perceived. And Worn Stories like really addresses that head on. And one of my favorites is about dress outs. Yeah. Well, first of all, like what what are dress outs? So dress outs are the clothes that you wear when you've been incarcerated and you leave prison. Um, it's the outfit that you wear when you leave. And your dress outs either can be something that, you know, you choose or that your family provides to you. When I say you choose, I mean, like, you're not like going online shopping, like you're asking your family to bring these clothes to you, or it's something that the prison is giving to you um, that, you know, could just be a pair of like oversized gray sweatpants and sweatshirts. And tell me about the episode or the section of the episode that you filmed that talks about what happens when you leave prison. So in that episode, there is a man named Carlos who is from an organization, uh, the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. And what he does is he picks 
people up uh, who are getting out of prison and who have no family or anyone to pick them up. And so he picks up Rudy. Uh, Rudy has been incarcerated for over 40 years. And Rudy comes out and he is wearing these huge gray sweatpants and gray sweatshirt and just like basically, you know, standard issue garments that the prison has given him. And he still kind of looks like he's incarcerated. And so Rudy and Carlos go to a thrift store and they find him a whole new set of clothes so that he can make that transition into being a free man and expressing himself, you know, not wearing the prison uniform anymore. Do you remember what you were wearing the day you went in? Yes. I was, I was wearing six pocket jeans, Levi's, uh, some biscuits, which are, are, are shoes, fancy shoes, and a Pendleton. But today I'm wearing sweats and a T-shirt. I feel overwhelmed. I was given a second chance. It made me really reflect on the things that I've done. I mean, I think that episode really hit home, too, in terms of, like, how important clothes are at this moment in this person's life. Like Carlos, as he's driving to pick Rudy up, he he mentioned, he's like, if you don't have family to send you your dress outs, they're going to give you whatever they have. And maybe those are like, you know, triple XL shorts and a wife beater. And if you're a black or a brown man and you get pulled over by the cops and that's what you're wearing, they're going to make assumptions about you. And does that impact your ability to stay out of prison? Like, yeah, maybe. Right. You know, I think this is also the thing with the show in general. We have an association with clothing that it's fashion or that it's superficial or that it's exclusive. But it really clothing is very democratic. It's something that we all wear or we make a decision not to wear it. But it's something that, you know, we walk through the world and we put on clothing. And so there's something very functional about it. And, um, and so I think that the show is kind of, you know, trying to get people to rethink that. And that story with Carlos and Rudy is just like a, an example of how important the things we put on our body are and what people read from the clothes that we wear. I'm a free man with the clothes I got on. I got a, a new shirt and some dicky pants and they match my shoes. Once I hit the gate, it opened up. I said, that's it. I'm not looking back. I'm moving forward, right? I mean, I looked in the mirror, and I liked what I saw. <laughs> there you go, bro. <laughs> and that made, a, that made all the difference in the world to me. Yeah. been inside a prison once, and it was, somewhat confusingly, in Northern Ireland. I was in college studying abroad in Dublin, and I was researching Augusto Bawal's theater of the oppressed and community-based participatory art making. I learned about a prison outside Belfast, where a local arts organization was helping inmates make a film called Mickey B, a retelling of Macbeth set in prison. Life's just a walking shadow. Tale told by an agent. Full of sign of fury. Signifying nothing. 
All the roles were played by inmates, and the film was crewed by inmates as well, so I took the bus up north to go check it out. McGabry Prison is a high-security facility, and it's incredibly imposing from the outside. But the biggest surprise for me lay inside, once I met the incarcerated men who were rehearsing and filming Mickey B. None of them wore uniforms. And this wasn't because they had special privileges or anything, just no inmates in Northern Ireland wear uniforms. I was expecting, you know, like orange jumpsuits or something, but instead it was jeans, rugby shirts, sneakers. The history of this dates to the Troubles, the 30-year conflict in Northern Ireland between Unionists, who were mainly Protestant and wanted to remain part of the UK, and Irish Nationalists, who were Catholic and wanted Northern Ireland to be part of the Republic of Ireland. In the 1970s, the Irish Republican Army negotiated for its incarcerated members to be granted special category status. That essentially meant that they were political prisoners and were treated like prisoners of war. So one of the privileges granted to them was that they didn't have to wear a prison uniform. But a few years later, the British government announced it was doing away with special category status and that Irish nationalist prisoners would be treated like common criminals. Thus began the blanket protest. IRA prisoners refused to wear their uniforms, instead draping themselves in their standard issue prison blankets for warmth. Tensions over special category status continued to escalate over the next few years, culminating in the death by hunger strike of 10 incarcerated men, including Bobby Sands. Shortly afterwards, the inmates' demands were met, and political prisoners once again could wear street clothes. I'm not entirely sure at what point the Northern Irish prison system did away with uniforms for all prisoners, regardless of political status. If the original point of uniforms was to send the message that Irish Republicans weren't special, that they were no better or more principled than common criminals, then maybe doing away with uniforms altogether was a way of achieving the same thing. Like, fine, if you get to wear street clothes, then everyone gets to wear street clothes. If you have a cupcake, hope you brought enough to share with the rest of the class. I have no idea. This is just supposition, but the legacy of the blanket protest is that when I walked into that prison, I looked no different from the men serving time there. Of course, there were plenty of ways that I was constantly reminded that we weren't just colleagues working on a film together, but clothing was not one of them. I insist that you talk to me about Sexy Saxman. <laughs> well, you know, gosh, Sexy Saxman, Tim Capella. So many of the stories that feature in the series obliquely deal with capital I issues like immigration, gender identity, addiction. Like the story of football pants worn by the Kurdish immigrant who found acceptance and belonging in Tennessee through sports. Or the patchwork quilt made by an incarcerated Black revolutionary for her son, whom she gave birth to while she was in prison. But there are moments of levity. Hey! Yeah? Bernadette! Yeah, I'm coming. Could you grease me, please? I'm all good? Good. Yeah? Yeah. Thank you, sweetheart. Appreciate it. He's just this gentle man who was on tour with Tina Turner for, you know, 15 plus years. 
And she said to him, hey, you know, on stage, you're going to be the tough guy. And she got him this cod piece to wear on stage. And, you know, that was part of like his persona. And, and describe him to me like at the peak of his prowess, both as a oh saxophone player and as a human. Well, I think that the pinnacle is his moment, his like 15 seconds of fame in The Lost Boys, um, which is why he's known as the sexy sax man. You know, he is like muscles and shirtless and, you know, greased up, oiled up, and he's got these long flowing locks and he's gyrating his hips as he plays the saxophone and he's in these like tight leather pants. I mean, it's a whole look. It's so distinctive that, you know, I mean, there have been caricatures and, you know, like versions of, of him and on SNL and, and whatnot. Sergio. But yeah, he starts off his story. He's like, I don't think I can play the saxophone without this cod piece. Like it just became this garment that like gave him power, that gave him the ability to be comfortable in his own skin, gave him the like strength to just like go on stage and perform in front of like thousands upon thousands of people. He's just like this gentle, gentle, sweet, sweet guy who just, you know, wears a cod piece on stage. This might be an unfair question, but is there a story from Worn Stories, the Netflix series that has really stayed with you or that you consider to be, I'm not going to say your favorite, but like specifically resonant for you? Yeah, so it's so hard to pick a favorite, but I think that there is one story um, that has just stuck with me as being an encapsulation of why this project feels important to me and what I'm hoping that other people interpret this project to be, which is Simon Doonan's story. And it's about these leggings, these biker shorts that he gets in the 80s and he's working in Los Angeles uh, at Maxfield at this fancy department store and he's doing their window displays. He's um, just moved there from London and, you know, it is the height of the AIDS epidemic and he has friends who are starting to get sick and he goes with a, a friend to the doctor and the doctor's like, you know, we don't know what to tell you to do. And so he turns to aerobics. The aerobics studio offered a kind of asylum, a refuge, an escape. So I would put on my lycra leggings and I would try and get there a bit early to get up to the front. The endorphin rush is extremely exhilarating and it is an antidepressant. So. I ended up going every day. What I love about this story is that it's basically a cultural history of Los Angeles in the 80s told through these biker shorts with commentary on what was going on with the AIDS epidemic and the absurdity of aerobics at the same time. And it's just, it paints a picture of a moment in time through the simplicity of, of a pair of shorts. That to me just like is exactly what I want these stories to do. And I think he does that so incredibly well. All the playful, surreal, crazy, dada aspect of my life at that time, making these demented window displays, the aerobics, 
That was an antidote to the misery and horror of this terrible plague. And yet, I am very nostalgic about the level of fun and, and silliness. Aerobics was basically incredibly cheesy, but cheesy things are fun. So aerobics was a nice little refuge of frivolity and stupidity and lycra. Like everyone else alive in 1990, I too have a story about bike shorts. Certainly not one as poignant as Simon Doonan's, but a story nonetheless. I must have been about five and my mom had allowed me to dress myself, which I did with gusto. I paired my bike shorts with a pink Minnie Mouse crop top, an extremely chic outfit, I thought, to go to Costco or Ross or wherever you go with your mom when you're five. But my mother thought otherwise. She said, you can wear the crop top or you can wear the bike shorts. You cannot wear both at the same time. I have thought about this comment on some subconscious level ever since. My mom predated the little shirt, big pants, big shirt, little pants discourse by about 30 years. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, here's a TikTok video from a real live teen explaining it. So if you're a girl, I figured out that any girl can fit into any of these categories. So you have little shirt, big pants, and they're usually by they alternative. They're really, they're cute by, like they're femme. They're really hot. Um, and then you have the big shirt, little pants, practically not looking like they're wearing any pants. Um, this is like the Visco girls, like they're basic, but they're cute and um, they're usually straight. Then you have big pants, big shirt. That's like the more masculine girls. They're gay usually, or they're like the Billie Eilish types, or they're just like, like the lazy girls, but they pull it off. And then you have the little shirt, little pants. And this is like the queen bee, femme, straight, usually like really hot and popular. Um, are you gonna, like, am I wrong? Am I wrong? Since the age of five, I have been thinking about what my clothes say about what kind of girl I am. And in case you were wondering, obviously I'm little shirt, big pants because I'm bi, but I'm like cute bi. If I took all the hours I spent as a preteen picking out outfits that made me look like I knew how to skateboard, I could have just learned how to skateboard. But now that I'm firmly in my 30s, I do think I dress more for myself and that I care less about what others think about what I'm wearing. I guess that's just a function of growing up. But last month, I was passing through Oklahoma City and I was crossing the street to get an ice cream when a car honked at me. Two teen girls leaned out their windows. One had pink hair, the other teal. They were total alternatines. And one of them yelled, I like your outfit. And it felt fucking great. You can watch Emily Spivak's show, Worn Stories, on Netflix. And buy copies of her books, Worn Stories and Worn in New York, wherever books are sold. But ideally at an independent bookstore. <laughs> 